Thank you for joining us here at Crossword Church for this week's message. Our desire is to see people's lives transform as they develop an authentic relationship with Jesus. We would like to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So take a moment and visit us online at mycrosswordchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. We're kicking off the new year with a teaching out of Colossians, God-Centered Living. Today I'm going to talk about, as the Holy Spirit leads, um, part one. This is a part one of a four-part series. Um, having a God-centered life in Christ. God-centered life in Christ. So a couple of questions. Is your relationship with God and others growing at its optimum capacity? And for those of us that are honest, we would say resoundingly, no, it's not. Here's another one. Are you advancing the gospel of the kingdom agenda, the gospel, at your optimum spiritual capacity? And for those of us that are humble before God, we would say no. Right? Are you truly seizing the day, carpe diem? Are you putting the right fuel in your life to fulfill God's plan for your life? The right fuel in your life. That's a little analogy. Just like a Formula One race car, athletes fine-tune their bodies to work on them daily. Not just when they feel like it. <laughs> uh, they plan their diets and exercise regimens meticulously. To make sure they can perform at maximum capacity when the demand is needed. So listen to this. Capabilities are studied and weak spots are exposed and strengthened. And then stamina is built up. The central focus is getting the maximum capacity output to win the race. You know, at the beginning of the year, most people sit down with their pen or their laptop or their computer and they begin to compile a list and we call them New Year's resolutions, right? Or goals to which some people experience success while many more people experience failures. I want you to hear this thought. The difference between those who succeed and those who fail is determined by the disciplines they choose to employ and impose in their lives during an extended period of time. So here's another, this is just introduction. Here's another question. What is the goal in your life? I'm not talking about goals for 2019. What is the goal? In your life, the Bible teaches us that we would only be able to attain our true goal in life when we become committed followers of Jesus, when we discipline our lives. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 9, and I'm going to get to Colossians in a moment. 1 Corinthians 9. 24 through 27, the New Living Bible says, Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? 
So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Verse 26 says, so I, I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Wow. Otherwise, I fear after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So what is this eternal prize that Paul is talking about? Are you winning in life for that prize? I would submit to you today that the eternal prize is Jesus Christ in us. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so if you're not truly pursuing after the Lord today, my prayer is after hearing this message that you would be challenged, nudged, inspired to really start pursuing God and living a God-centered life. So, here we go. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And the first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, they are doctrinal. He's dealing with some doctrinal stuff. Because there was something called uh, the Colossian heresy that was afoot among the church. In chapter 3, he moves from the- theology or doctrine and then he moves to practical teaching. How many love practical teaching? Yes. Practical stuff that we can apply in our lives. And we don't need the, the lexicons and the dictionaries to figure it out. We just, it's just plain, right? So, for us to move on, let me just give a brief overview of the Colossian heresy that was going on in his day. You know, the interesting thing about the Bible is that it's written to a particular people. It's, this is called context. And they were experiencing some things. Um, and so the, the letter is, is written to address some of the things that they are experiencing. But there are uh, spiritual applications and principles that we, 2,000 years later, we can apply today. Amen? And so if you study, you know, the letter, Paul, he never explicitly identified this heresy. It was basically dealing with some false teaching. We do know that. And then there are a few things that he calls out as he's writing this letter. So let me just give you a couple of them. Uh, number one, he was talking about ceremonialism. Ceremonialism. So this was dealing with <clears throat> all kinds of rules regarding food and drink. And so we have ceremonialism. The next issue dealt with how they were handling the food. Don't handle it. Don't taste it. Don't touch it. The next item dealt with angel worship. The next item that Paul also addressed was failure to grasp the significance of Christ. 
That's why chapter 1, he spends all this time talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The fifth thing he identified was this idea of secret knowledge. And there was a group called the Gnostics that were spreading this idea that there is some secret knowledge here. And Paul was very intentional and he wanted the people to understand that the, the hidden treasure that's found in Christ alone. And then the last thing was reliance on human wisdom and tradition. And so we see Paul addressing these things. Let me make this statement. Our beliefs must reflect and be reflected in our behavior. Our conversation must be translated into our conduct. There must be an absolute distinction from who we were before Christ and who we are in Christ. And so let's proceed and read Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights, the NIV said, set your heart on the reality of heaven or things above, where Christ sits in a place of honor at God's right hand. Think about things of heaven. Set your mind on things above, the NIV says. Not on things of the earth. For you died to this life. Listen, listen. You died to this life for your real life is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Verse 5 says, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for greedy, a greedy person is an idolater. Worshipping the things of this world because of these sins, the anger or the wrath of God is coming. What things? Those things that he just identified. Verse 7, you used to do those things when your life was still part of the world. But now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and uh, malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful nature. And all its wicked deeds, its practices, the NIV says. And so put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Is this something that God is not just calling us to know him or know about him, but he's calling us to become like him? Verse 11. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew, I love this, or Gentile. If you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised, if you're barbaric or you're uncivilized, if you're slave or if you're free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. 
that would handle all of the racial issues. Okay, let me continue here. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, watch this, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted or compassionate mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make no allowances for each, make allowances, I'm sorry, for each other's faults. The NIV says, bear with one another and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you. So you forgive, you must forgive others. Above all, verse 14, these virtues, NIV, clothe yourself with love, which binds all together in perfect harmony. I thought it was important to read all of this. Because God is calling us to live God-centered lives. Two big points. Our union with Christ in this text reveals three benefits. The first one speaks of our position with or in Christ. In verse 1, Paul says, we have been raised with Christ and died with Christ. Verse 3, through faith in him, we have been risen with him. We have been risen with him. It's one thing for us to say that we belong to him, but yet we live like we belong to another person. We live like we belong to the world, but we're saying we belong to God. So we have been raised with Christ. The second, the second benefit speaks to our protection in and with Christ. Paul says in verse 3, that our lives have been hidden with Christ. Just think about that. And then the third, the third, the third speaks to our prospect with and in Christ. He says in verse 4 that we're going to be glorified. We're going to be glorified. A God-centered life requires that we do two things. Everybody say two things. I can tell y'all are locking into this. This is great. Y'all remember the movie, The Karate Kid? And we remember Mr. Mi Mr. Miyagi. And we remember Danielson. And if you could re rehearse that movie, the big lines that stood out was wax on and wax off. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about waxing off and waxing on. Paul says that we have to get rid of certain things. He, he calls us to get rid of and to be removed from sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. 
wax that off. It's interesting in Paul's apostles, he, in almost all of them, Paul is always dealing with the issue of purity, immorality, lust. Why is that? It's because I believe Paul knows that we have a propensity to find ourselves in those situations. That there is, a, there is a heart pull towards immorality because it opposes God. And so in his epistles to the church, Paul is identifying these things. So, so he calls out sexual immorality and impurity and lust. He says, remove that, wax that off, and then replace it um, or wax on holiness in thought, in words, and in actions. Uh, wax off uh, evil desires and greed or covetousness. Get rid of that. Why? Because if you're operating in those things, you're operating in idolatry. And replace that with godliness, with contentment. Do you realize how many people struggle with contentment today? He continues and he says, um, get rid of anger. And rage and malice and slander and dirty language. Now, there's a difference between anger and rage. Anger you bottle up on the inside of you. Rage you release it out into the atmosphere. And so you, you, we, we're called to, uh, to wax those things off. And then to replace or wax on uh, tenderheartedness, uh, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, peace forgiveness and love and then he says he says also lying remove lying why would he say that and replace it with truthfulness why would he say that because even though we know and remember this letter is not written to unsaved folk this is read, this is written to christian people right church folks and even though we know the scripture in revelation that Liars have their place in hell. We still show up in our homes and in our marriages and in our churches and in our business. And we still practice lying. Because we are saying something academically, but in our spirit, in our souls, we really don't believe that. And Paul is calling the church into a place of truthfulness. I, be I believe that this is why... He continues to admonishes us that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because we can have many big plans to do many things in church, in church contexts. You know, we're, we're preaching here, we're doing music here, we're building here, we're, we're doing nonprofits, we're doing all kinds of things. But these, I, I, I dare say, little foxes. These things, we don't pay attention. We want to come and lift our hands and, and worship God, and, and, and yet we have unforgiveness in our hearts. We, we have struggles being able to work with our brother and sister, and, 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 and we want to come and try to act like we're spiritual and, and we're holy. And, and what's really being represented is that we are still operating as babes in carnality. And so Paul is saying, is saying, you got to get rid of these things. We have to remove these things in order for these other things to be replaced in our lives. Mm. 
there are many theological terminologies in the Christian faith. I'm just going to touch on, th- on three of them really briefly here. Salvation. You know, you can come to church and hear the word salvation and still don't fully understand what it means. Right? So fa- salvation simply means That God has rescued us from the power of sin through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That is something that only God can do. Everybody say, only God can do it. So regardless to what your pedigree is or your training or background or who you know, you cannot save your soul from sin. The next theological term that you will hear sometime is the word justification. Okay? This means that God has acquitted you of the penalty of sin. Again, this is something that only God can do. It's literally a legal term. And the last word that I just want to just bring out with regards to this text is the word sanctification. Everybody says sanctification. You know, one of the things that I like to do is to try to boil things down into the simplest form, right? So sanctification simply means that at salvation, God separates you and I unto himself from the world. Everybody get that? However, in our Christian walks, we are called to participate with God through his word and his spirit to sanctify ourselves daily. Look at your neighbor and say, you have a part in your sanctification. See, the thing about this whole sanctification is you can't hire out the the job responsibility of um, getting rid of the old you. What I mean, you can't say, you know, Pastor Vernon, can you please just get rid of the old me for myself? I'm going to have to back up and say, no, 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 I can't. I can't do that. We all have the responsibility in our sanctification process daily. Hmm. See, God abhors self-righteousness. We are all at different levels in our walks with God. So what we should be doing is making sure we're encouraging and challenging each other to grow in God, in godliness, and in good works. And not be condemning or condescending towards people of lesser spiritual maturity. We should be encouraging and challenging each other to grow. Paul continues this, this thought and, you know, in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you can, just turn there with me. Uh, beginning of verse 21. He says, Ephesians 4, 21, he says, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupt by lust and deception. Oh my goodness. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes and put your new nature, put on your new nature, created to be like God and true righteousness, truly righteous and holy. So how do you know? How do you know if you have really changed? How do you know if after five years, three years, two years, a year, 20 years of going to church, have you really changed? We must be willing to get objective feedback on our 
behavior, our attitudes, and our actions. How were we before Christ? And how are we now? We must be willing to have someone speak into our lives. Amen? Because here's, here's the test. Here's the litmus test. Do, you know, when difficult circumstances of life show up in my life, do I revert back to the old me? Do I go back and get the old toolbox from the old life so I can bring out some words? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I can bring out some attitudes from the old life, right? Because the pressure is on. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to, this is what people say, I'm going to lay down my sanctification for a moment so I can handle this. What are we saying? We're going we're gonna to fully express our carnality right now. See? And I'll just, I'll just also say this, that there is a difference between what we believe and how we practice Christianity as born-again Christians or believers um, who are faithful in trying to um, obey um, the scriptures and divide the scriptures correctly versus old religious practices. Which used to teach us that we need to do and try and do and try and just keep on trying. And maybe eventually you might be saved. Anybody ever know about that kind of teaching? <laughs> you have no relationship with God and you're practicing a dead, impure religion. What the Bible teaches is that you and I do not have to do and try. Why? Because Jesus did it. And because he did it and we're putting our faith in him and we're receiving him into our lives, we now are saved by God. And from that position of being saved, we now do. Everybody get this? So I'm not, I'm not working to try to get my salvation. I am saved and now my works are a result of my, my salvation. You know, so what you have is the distinction between works righteousness versus faith righteousness. Theologians call this the, in, the indicative and the imperative. Can I just get a minute? Can you all just hang with me? I, I know I'm getting a little. Uh, <laughs> the indicative, Paul writes to the Colossians and says uh, in verse 1, Since you have been raised to life with Christ. That's, that, that's the indicative. Since you've been raised to life in Christ. And in verse 12, he also says, since you choose to, since God chose you to be his holy people. These statements are statements of fact. These are God, this is God's part. It is what God has already done through Jesus Christ. God acted first. He provided salvation for us. I saw this interesting quote from Rick Warren, and he says this, We can't do what God only can do, but God won't do what only we should do. Everybody get that? You know, sometimes we, we, we miss it and feel as though that, you know, God's going to do everything. I, I, I got some, some good news for you in 2019. God has already done. Oh, Lord Jesus. Some of us sitting back saying, God, I really want you to make a change. I need you to, to rearrange my life. And God is saying, you don't understand, baby. I've already done it 2,000 years ago. I've already given you and made all provisions for you. He says this in his word, that, that his word provides everything that we need for life and godliness. 
There's no situation that you face in life that the Bible does not speak into. There's no situation that a nation faces that the word of God does not speak into. But what happens is people get on their own agenda. And so God's agenda gets lost in the message and in the messages. So, so we, we, we heard the, the indicative, you know, since you've been raised, right? So here's the imperative because Paul continued. He said, so since you've been raised to life with Christ, indicative, here's the imperative. Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. So since you have been raised to life, now act this particular way. That's, that's the imperative. The call to act in the, in the way that you have been already positioned. The next, the next indicative is this. Um, since God chose you to be the holy people that he loved, you must clothe yourself, verse 12, with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. When you see that word clothe, the Greek picture of that word is think about your favorite robe. And you get to put your favorite robe on. Feels good, don't it? But now think about this beautiful, large blanket. And you put the blanket on and every area of your life is covered and warm with that blanket. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about to be clothed. To be clothed with tenderheartedness. To be clothed with mercy. To be clothed with kindness and humility and gentleness. To be clothed with patience. What would the church look like if we are clothed with patience? How would we interact with one another if we're clothed with patience? Huh? These are the commands. These are our parts. We are supposed to do what we're supposed to do because we are now in Christ. I'm going to say this again. There has to be a distinction with your life before Christ and your life after Christ. Because if there's no distinction, you might be deceiving yourself. There is God's, God's part and then there's our part. In works righteousness, we're trying and we're doing and we do it all in vain. In, in faith righteousness, um, God has already done. And so we respond to what God has done in faith. God has always acted first. Can you just say that with me? Say, God has always acted first. Let me just give you a couple examples real quick. First, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the word. God acted first. Revelations 13, 8. In Genesis chapter 3, God created the garden and had fellowship with Adam. God acted first. In Genesis 3... Adam sinned and hid himself from God, but God still came to meet him in the cool of the day. God acted first. In 1 John 4, 19, we loved him because what? He first loved us. How about this one? Romans 12, 1. In view of God's mercy, we should present ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifice. 
God acted first. Here's another little quote from Max Locato. Max Locato put it like this. If there are a thousand steps between us and him, God, he will take all but one and leave the final one to us. See, you cannot come to Christ except the Father first draws you. John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. God is always the initiator in our lives. God is calling us to having a God-centered life. We must have faith vision for our lives. Paul said to set your sights, your heart and your mind on the reality of heaven where Christ sits. Christ not only removed us from the power of sin, he also, watch this, washes us from the stain and the stench of sin. Amen? And just so that you know, when we do fall short, and we will, this is what his word says. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not looking for perfect pursuit of him. Listen to this. God is simply looking for persistent pursuit of him. Y'all get that? He's not looking for perfect pursuit, but for persistent. It means that when you fall down and you stumble and you lose your way, that you get back up because he is pursuing after you and he just wants you to keep coming. God-centered life is only possible in Jesus Christ alone. No other name. In Christ alone. Christ alone is the Son of God who became flesh to reveal to us God's incredible, amazing, unconditional love for all humanity. Christ alone is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The only unblemished, spotless, pure Lamb of God who died for our sins. Christ alone is at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us and he is uh, empowering us by his spirit so that we can live a God-centered life. It's been said that Christ's death is sufficient for all but efficient only for those who believe in Christ. Not everyone will be saved, but Christ offers salvation to all. God's love for you is static. What I mean by that, it is unchanging. But his relationship with you, he desires it to be organic or dynamic. To grow and develop as you put your faith in Christ alone, as you put your identity in. 
in Christ alone in 2019. The God-centered life, again, can only be found in Christ alone. No substitutes. Is your life truly hidden in Christ?